Well, I think there's a lot of good cases on this term. Nothing like health care or perhaps gay marriage, but a lot of good cases. I think the one that has the potential to get the most attention is the case that's coming and not quite there yet on the contraceptive mandate. There are a lot of big cases and, and really, I think, a lot of consequential cases. But something like whether or not the president's recess appointments to the NLRB are constitutional, which is something that gets lawyers really excited. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also another blog called Media Law. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, online practice management for lawyers at www.goclio.com. Well, today marks the start of the Supreme Court's 2013-2014 term. Last term, we saw some monumental decisions. To name a few, Obamacare was declared constitutional. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was changed. Part of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, was struck down. These high-profile cases got quite a bit of attention in the media, and they made a large impact on society. Trailing behind those decisions were gay rights, national health care. Some say this upcoming agenda has fallen under the radar. But take note, because this upcoming term has more critical legal issues in store and the possibility for more front-page news decisions. Yeah, maybe there aren't uh, any clear blockbusters on the docket so far, but there are certainly some interesting cases coming up involving campaign finance laws, uh, affirmative action at public universities, buffer zones around abortion clinics, the authority of the president to make recess appointments, and even a copyright claim involving the 1980 film Raging Bull. So there's uh, certainly some issues on the agenda that could turn out some significant results, some significant outcomes. We've invited two experts to join us on the show today. I'd first like to welcome the editor of SCOTUS blog, Amy Howe. Amy has served as counsel in over two dozen merits cases at the Supreme Court and has argued two cases there. She's co-taught Supreme Court litigation courses at Stanford and Harvard Law Schools, and she's been with the SCOTUS blog since 2003. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks. It's great to be back. And we'd also like to welcome to the show a Los Angeles Times Supreme Court correspondent, David Savage. Covering the court for nearly three decades now, he also writes a monthly column for the ABA Journal and is regularly featured on NPR's Talk of the Nation. In 1992, he published Turning Right, the Making of the Rehnquist Supreme Court, outlining the efforts of the Reagan and first Bush administrations to remake the high court. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, David Savage. It's good to be with you. Well, let me just ask, I wonder if I could just kick off. And It seems like everything that I've been reading about this term is what I kind of just said, that we're not seeing the big blockbusters coming up. David, do you agree with that? I mean, is there anything on your radar screen that uh, has the potential to be uh, a blockbuster at the level of some of the cases that we saw during the last term? Well, I think there's a lot of good cases on this term, nothing like health care or perhaps gay marriage, but a lot of good cases. I think the one that has the potential to get the most attention is the case that's coming and not quite there yet on the contraceptive mandate. This is sort of a, 
you know, another uh, case growing out of the President's Affordable Care Act, uh, the likelihood is that Solicitor General appealed a case just a week or so ago uh, where the Tenth Circuit blocked enforcement. And the issue is whether for-profit companies can say, uh, I'm not going to provide, I don't want to provide contraceptive coverage as part of insurance because it includes abortifacients and it violates my religious beliefs. The likelihood is the court's going to take that case in the spring and decide it by June. So if there's one really big case to get a lot of attention, I think that's probably it. Amy, what's your take? I think that's right, that, that there are a lot of big cases and, and really, I think, a lot of consequential cases. But something like whether or not the president's recess appointments to the NLRB are constitutional, which is something that get, gets lawyers really excited, um, is not going to be something that's going to hold the public interest the way that same-sex marriage and health care have in the past couple of terms. I also think that maybe with some of these cases that are going to be very important, but there may be a sense of inevitability in the campaign finance case, for example, a sense that the, that the Supreme Court is very likely that there are going to be five votes to strike down the, 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 the limits that are at issue in that case. And so, you know, I think people, in, in some sense, sort of see the, the handwriting on the wall. There's, there's not going to be necessarily some of the suspense that we've had in the past couple of terms. What cases do you think will be slipping under the radar that need to get more news attention, David? Well, I think there are four or five uh, really good uh, cases. Now, we talked a little bit about the campaign finance case. That's a uh, reason that case is important. As you know, two or three years ago in Citizens United, the court said independent political spending is free speech. And they, they basically said wealthy people and corporations and unions can spend unlimited amounts independent spending. That case caused a big uh, ruckus, and it's still, uh, particularly people on the left are still upset with it. But the court had never, uh, has not knocked down the contribution limits, the notion that uh, the government can limit how much people give directly to candidates or directly to political parties. And the court has a case up uh, in the next uh, week or so that where the Republican National Committee is asking the court to take a big step. I sort of see this as as Act 2 in striking down the campaign finance laws. And the question is, uh, there are total limits. Um, uh, If you were so inclined, uh, Craig or Bob, you could give up to $123,000 to uh, candidates and or parties in the 2013-2014 cycle. That's the total limit. So the good news is for you two fellows and for any of your listeners is that if the court strikes this down, you could, you could give something like $3.6 million because you could say, I'm going to give X amount of $5,200 to every member, 400 and some 30 members of Congress and all the political parties. The likelihood, as Amy says, that's likely to happen. The five conservative justices are skeptical of the campaign finance laws. And um, this would allow someone like Mitch McConnell or John Boehner or uh, Chuck Schumer, someone in Congress to sort of set up a system where somebody goes in and gives a $3 million check and it gets passed out among all the different candidates and all the parties. So the short of it is uh, the likelihood is they're going to hand down a decision that will put a lot more clout in the hands of the very tiny segment of the United States population 
that wants to you know can has millions to spend uh, on uh, campaigns and politicians. So I think that's a fairly big deal. And let me mention another one that's a sort of a different category is this notion of legislative prayer. Uh, there's a, uh, a legislative prayer case up from a small town in New York. The reason I think it's worth watching is because the court's been very divided for 30 years on, you know, how do you know an establishment of religion when you see it? And they've sort of had the Justice O'Connor view that uh, there's sort of, if it looks like the government is endorsing religion, uh, then that's unconstitutional. And that's shown up in the cases involving Ten Commandments. Um, it has, and it shows up in some of these school prayer cases or, in this case, prayer before town council. And the advocates in this case are asking the Supreme Court to change the law in a big way and say there is no establishment of religion unless the government is coercing or forcing people to participate in religion. And if they do that, that's a big change in the law, and it'll have a lot of effect in a lot of different type of religious disputes. Amy, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you mentioned the NLRB case, which I think you referred to as a case only a lawyer could love, or that certainly lawyers will love. Could you explain that a little bit more? What's at stake in that case? What are the issues? And, and what, uh, what do you see might happen with that? Sure. This is, this is a funny one, because it actually started out uh, as a battle between a union and a company that bottles soft drinks over a 40 cents per hour raise in a new contract. And the union took the dispute to the NLRB, which ruled in its favor. And employers, uh, a lot of employers don't like the NLRB. They regard it as overly pro-union. So the soft drink bottling company in this case, which is called Noel Canning, took the case to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which a lot of people regard as the second highest court in the land. And it challenged both the merits of the board's decision about this contract dispute, but then it also said that uh, you know, three of the president's appointments to the NLRB um, were recess appointments. They, you know, they weren't nominated. They weren't nominated and confirmed by the Senate. Uh, the the president, uh, as has been a, a, a problem in past administrations, has been nominating people, but, but not necessarily getting them confirmed by the Senate. And so he made what, what's known as recess appointments, which allows you to appoint someone during a recess, and then that person serves until the end of that particular congressional session, um, at which point either they need to get confirmed or, or their time ends. And so that the Noel Canning, the soft drink company, said that three of the president's appointments to the board were recess appointments, and therefore they're unconstitutional, and the board's decision going against us should be invalid. And so the recess appointments is, is a provision in the Constitution, and it allows the president to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of, a, of the Senate. And so the question before the Supreme Court is, what does it mean for the Senate to be in recess, and what does it mean for vacant, vacancies to happen? Is it enough that this particular post on the NLRB is vacant when there is a recess, or does the, the post have to come open during the recess? And the D.C. Circuit ruled for NLRB against the Obama administration. So the Obama administration sought Supreme Court review and got it. And so the, it's, it's really a question that the Supreme Court has not considered before, which is, you know, what exactly does this resource, recess appointments clause mean? And so 
could have repercussions, obviously, not just for the case before the Supreme Court, but potentially for all of the decisions by the NLRB that were issued when those three commissioners were recess appointees. Uh, But even more broadly, given the gridlock in Washington that we're seeing right now, if the court were to rule that uh, you know, to, to narrow the president's ability to make recess appointments, it would really shift the power to the Senate in the confirmation process. So the Senate could hold, up, you know, not act on the nominations that it didn't like, um, knowing that the president's ability to make these recess appointments would be very limited. I was going to say, I sure agree with that on the, uh, it's really an interesting issue to be before the court now at the same time the government shutdown is going on because both of them involve the question of whether a partisan minority can block action by the majority. As as Amy said, this situation with President Obama's nominees didn't come up with because Obama nominated a few highly controversial people where most of the Senate didn't like them or wouldn't approve them. And so the president said, oh, I'm going to when you leave town for the weekend, I'm going to go ahead and recess appointment. This was a situation where the president picked relatively non-controversial people to an agency that the partisan Republicans don't like, the National Labor Relations Board and the, and the uh, Consumer Finance, whatever it's called, Consumer Prote- Finance Protection Agency or whatever, Richard Cordray. And um, the Republicans and these nominees had a majority vote. You know, the Constitution says they need a majority vote to be approved by the Senate. Uh, but the Republicans hung together and blocked a vote. So they have a situation where the minority is blocking a vote by the majority to confirm the president's appointees. And essentially, if, the, if Obama couldn't appoint anybody to the NLRB, then the agency couldn't function. It needed three members. And... Um, and so at that point, Obama then turned around and made these recess appointments during a very short Senate recess. And the D.C. court, uh, the Chamber of Commerce took the issue to the D.C. Circuit and the D.C. Circuit said the recess appointments were unconstitutional. So it's a long way of saying it's a very interesting dispute that has arisen in the sort of climate of Washington right now, where a lot of the things sort of turn on is whether a partisan minority can block uh, action by the majority. It's interesting. Subsequently, the president submitted new nominees, and and they were approved by the Senate. So, I mean, effectively, this involves uh, the cases that were decided by the recess members, but I guess doesn't doesn't have applicability to the present constitution of the uh, NLRB. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, the good news of that is that the Democrats sort of got <laughs> irritated and said, we need to work out something. And they managed to work out a deal that allowed, uh, where the Republicans sort of relented and allowed a certain number of appointees to go through. And this crisis seemed to abate. But as Amy suggested, if the Supreme Court upholds the view that the president's recess power is quite limited, then this issue is likely to arise again, perhaps in the context of trying to appoint judges to the courts. Well, Amy and David, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, 
Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pr- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud. In in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Robert Ambrosi. As I mentioned before the break, David, uh, I'd like to ask you about the town of Greece versus Galloway. It just seems kind of impossible that we're still talking about prayer and the First Amendment and, in this instance, legislative prayer. What can you tell us about this case? Well, this is a, a small town in upstate New York that had, um, uh, in, beginning in 1999, one of the heads of the town council said he wanted to uh, have somebody to invite a local cleric to give a um, a prayer at the beginning of each, I think they meet once a month, each uh, each meeting. And uh, for about seven or eight years in a row, every prayer was a uh, from a Christian minister, and apparently they were quite specific. They were not the sort of generic, um, you know, God save the United States in this honorable court type prayers, but uh, prayers to Jesus Christ as our, our Savior. And two women, uh, uh, who uh, I believe one or both were Jewish, had objected and first of all complained about it, and then when it continued, uh, filed a lawsuit. And um, the case eventually made it to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which said that um, it might be one thing to have a non-sectarian prayer, but this is a situation where people had to go to this council frequently to get things like zoning variances or whatever. In other words, they needed something from the council, relatively small meetings, 10 or 20 people, and that the appeals court said, this looks like an endorsement. The reasonable person would say, if I have to go to this and and even stand up and participate in these prayers, that's an endorsement of religion and therefore uh, unconstitutional. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think the Supreme Court took the case because the conservative justices think that the uh, that doctrine in this area is is sort of gone off the rails, and that um, that you know a simple prayer at the beginning of a legislature is not a, an official uh, establishment of religion. And I think the likelihood is the court will reverse the Second Circuit, and what will all be interested in is whether they decide the case very narrowly, or try to say something in a big way that says it's okay to have you know, the Ten Commandments on the town square or something of that sort, that these kinds of um, brief and ceremonial religious uh, either ceremonies or endorsements are not uh, unconstitutional. Amy, what's your take on that? Where are we drawing the wiggly line of um, this wiggly bright line of uh, freedom of religion and, and prayer? 
I think David's right that uh, you know, this is one of these cases, and, and I think there's several of them. I think McCutcheon is another one where there doesn't really seem to be any significant doubt about what the court's going to do. It's just a question of you know how much the court is going to move the law. And I think it's it's really noteworthy in this case that the Obama administration has filed a brief that is mostly supportive of the town. And the reason, uh, you know, at least one of the reasons why it did that is because one of the places that opens its session with a prayer is Congress. And, you know, the notion that Congress can't open its session with a prayer is, is going to be anathema to, you know, at least five of, five of these justices. And to justice, the, the, the town has pitched this as, you know, let's, let's get rid of this endorsement test and look at whether or not prayers before legislative meetings are coercive. And so you know, will the court, court buy into this coercion theory? It, it seems like there, there could well be five votes to do that. Amy, what other, what other cases are, are jumping out at you uh, this semester that you're looking forward to following, finding interest in? Sure. There's, a, there's one called McCullen versus Coakley, which is the intersection, so to speak, of abortion and the First Amendment. There are federal laws that provide some protection for women who are seeking access to abortion clinics, but some states, including Massachusetts, have enacted laws that are intended to provide women with additional protection. And so this case is a challenge to one of those laws. The court uh, 13 years ago, in a case called Hill versus Colorado, considered a similar case. Uh, there was a Colorado law that drew a 100-foot line around healthcare facilities and made it illegal for abortion protesters to go within eight feet of anyone within that 100-foot buffer zone to counsel, educate, or protest. And the court said that law was constitutional. It struck the right balance between protecting the clinic's patients from unwanted attention and Uh, the need to allow protesters to protest. And so this Massachusetts law is a little bit different. It it makes it a crime to be within 35 feet of the entrance or exit of an abortion clinic. But there's an exception to the law for employees of the clinic who are acting within the scope of their employment. And so uh, abortion protesters have challenged this law. This is a, a you know that there have been a lot of changes on the court since the Hill decision in 2000. Um, that was a six to three decision. But the only justices from the remaining majority are Justices Ginsburg and Breyer. Justices Stevens and Souter are gone. They were in the majority in Hill and have been replaced by Sotomayor and Kagan. But Justices O'Connor and and Chief Justice William Rehnquist were also in the majority in Hill. And uh, you know, they've been replaced by Justices Alito and Roberts. And, and so it seems like there is a, a good chance that the justices, that there will be five votes to invalidate this law. And the protesters in this case argue that unlike the Hill case, the Massachusetts law discriminates based on your viewpoint. If you work for the abortion clinic, you can go within that buffer zone and say anything within the scope of your employment. But if you are an abortion protester, you, you can't go in there and say anything at all. Um, this is a, a court that has been very protective of very controversial speech in the past couple of years, and I, I, th- I think that that does not bode well for this law. 
It's an interesting question, though. I mean, it, it raises this question of does <laughs> does working for somebody necessarily mean an endorsement of what that somebody does? I mean, is that a speech issue? Or well, you know, I think that the the protesters' their argument is that they can that, is that the employees of the clinic can go in and talk to women who are you know trying to enter the clinic to get an abortion and talk to them you know about about the process because that would be regarded within the scope of their employment but that the women the, the protesters can't provide women with with their views on on abortion and the process interesting one of the interesting things to watch at that case is as i bet the justices particularly the conservative justices are very skeptical of this notion of the buffer zone and the no speech zone and I don't think any of the attorneys will have the nerve to say it, but I think it's interesting that the court has a buffer around its own building and, <laughs> and uh, it does not allow, has been very insistent on not allowing uh, speech or protest to people walking up on the plaza. There was a judge wanted to strike that down last uh, spring and the court uh, got some order to maintain that. So in other words, they understand the notion of a, of a buffer zone or that they wouldn't like to be harassed or, or blocked trying to walk in or out of the building, and they don't even want other people going into the court building. But when it comes to one of these buffer zones and these abortion clinic cases, the whole, I bet the whole tenor of the question will be, how in the world could a buffer zone like that stand considering the First Amendment and the freedom of speech? Interesting stuff. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time at this point to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information. So, Amy, let's start with you. I think that, that this is it's going to be a, a great term. It's not going to be a, a blockbuster, but, you know, of course, one of the hazards of doing these previews at the beginning of October is that the court's docket is really only about half full, and... So there's some incredibly interesting cases that are already on the docket. I think there are going to be several more that will join uh, these cases. As David mentioned, the uh, challenge to the Affordable Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate. The court is also almost certainly going to have to return to issues involving cell phones, technology, and the Fourth Amendment. There are a couple of petitions for certiorari. Uh, that deal with whether or not when the government arrests you, they can search your cell phone. And the, the court in a, in a recent case uh, really sort of dodged the issue of having to get into sort of modern-day technology with, with cell phones and GPS tracking devices, but uh, it seems likely that it may have to do so this year. Amy, we should before we close with you, we should get your uh, contact information so our listeners can reach out to you. Ah. Yes, uh, you can reach me through www.scotusblog.com. My email address is ahow at scotusblog.com. Great. And David, your final thoughts and your contact information. Well, I think this is definitely a term to uh, stay tuned because I think there's uh, the last couple of years it has been the cases that we didn't, in, in October, we didn't have a very good sense of how the court term was going to play out. Last year, we thought the big decision would be affirmative action from Texas, and it, it sort of fizzled. But there were, you know, big decisions on voting rights and gay marriage. I think the thing, one of the issues to watch for this term is one of these abortion regulation cases. There's a, a last week Arizona appealed a a Ninth Circuit decision that blocked its 20-week abortion ban. There's something like 12 or 13 states that have these. There's been a series of 
abortion regulation laws passed by essentially red states in the last two or three years, uh, all those cases are going to sort of head towards the Supreme Court. And sooner or later, they're going to have to take one of them. I think it's quite likely they may take one this term. So I think that's a big sleeper issue. And the question is, how much can the state go to regulate? Not, not ban abortion, but regulate or restrict abortion. It's a very uncertain area of the law. And I, I think so. I think this is a term to, to stay tuned because I think there'll be some big cases and it'll be more apparent in the spring than it is now that this is a, going to be a pretty big term. Uh, the easy and best way to reach me is my is an email, and it's my first and last name. It's david.savage, S-A-V-A-G-E, and at latimes.com. Great. Well, we've come to the point in the program where Bob and I each only have 30 seconds to share our closing thought before we're cut off by the buzzers. So, Bob, your turn. Uh, Craig, I have no great insights to share on this term. I, I think that uh, the one thing I've learned from uh, our doing these annual uh, before-term and end-of-term shows is that, uh, as David said, stay tuned. I'm sure there will be surprises. I'm sure there's going to be a lot to talk about by the time this term is over, uh, and uh, I look forward to doing it. I'm going to be reading SCOTUS blog uh, every day, uh, and, uh, and I'll be reading David Savage's coverage in the LA Times as well to stay tuned to what's going on. Certainly two excellent resources to turn to for this information, and certainly because it continues to change and, and uh, the Supreme Court will be taking new cases as time goes on. But I, I'm particularly interested in uh, Town of Greece versus Galloway. I just am amazed at this point that uh, we're still trying to deal with this issue when there's you know, seemingly a lot of law on it, but as Amy points out, there's some a dearth of law in some of these particular areas, and I, I, it's hard to believe that we have, well, first of all, it's hard to believe we have legislators that are willing to shut down our government, but it's hard to believe that we have legislators who are not willing to be tolerant and allow other, other religions to come in and speak. It just blows my mind at this point. Well, I've been buzzed and... Uh, yeah, interesting stuff. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to just take a moment to thank uh, Amy and David for taking the time to be with us today. really appreciate their contributions and their thoughts. Thanks to both of you for being on the show. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Great to talk to all three of you. Great. Glad to have you both on the show, and it certainly has made it a, a very interesting show. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.